happy Pentecost Sunday. And so they said, Jeremy said when he came in, um, he said, well, the screens are down. Something's not connected to the computer or whatever. I said, well, I'd say they didn't have um, screens and, um, and computers back on Pentecost Sunday. I said, I say we can manage today. So <laughs> they still had church, didn't they? Yeah. Amen. Um, just wanted to talk to you all for a few minutes this morning about um, something God's put on my heart. Um, we have four sons, as you all know, so uh, we kind of watch their lives. You know, they're so busy uh, raising four kids, and, I, and my wife always reminds me, she said, you know, we think our kids are busier um, than um, they should be sometimes, you know, running this way and running that way and doing this with their kids and doing this with them. Um, things going on in their lives, she said, but I'd say our parents thought the same thing about us. Um, it probably wasn't as a, at a great um, degree, um, maybe as what um, all of you, we got, a young, we got a young generation crowd in this church, and um, so many children. If I ask you to raise hands who has children in this church, I mean, almost every single hand would go up. Um, and I know that's a challenge, it was a challenge when we were raising our kids, and things weren't as busy as what they are now. But um, I thought, you know, the world is competing for our time. Um, it's a competitive world. But um, some of the most competitive people I know are leaders. And I don't think there's anything wrong with um, competition, and I don't think there's anything wrong with um, having a competitive spirit. Um, even children at a really early age learn to compete. Uh, you know, we we would take ours to play soccer. It was um, we had Justin. You know, he was five years old, so of course we we wanted him to play soccer like all the other kids were were playing soccer, and and um, we'd never had no kids play soccer. That was our first child, so we would take him to the soccer field. Well, his mom, Debbie, she would run up and down the sideline. If you t if you talk to any of the the kids that they grew up with. Um, they have memories of Justin and Aaron's mom running up and down the sideline the entire game telling them to kick the ball, kick the ball, you know, telling them, giving them orders and instructions how to. She's very competitive, and they get all their competitiveness in that realm from their mom. <laughs> but, um, you know, and I thought about, too, you know, how kids, you see them out. Now, this is whenever I was growing up, you know. We, uh, we had a big field that we played softball in, you know. And no organized sports at all whatsoever. We just we just got out there and played ball. And um, they always had a team a team captain. Well, I always wanted to be the team captain because then I get to pick, and I wouldn't be the last one picked. Because <laughs> you know, you got the non-athletic kids that's always standing around waiting out there. Hurry up and pick me, somebody pick me, and you just want to go before the girls. <laughs> I could hit the ball, but some of my sisters could outrun me. <laughs> so it's, um, I always thought of myself um, maybe as a, I wasn't competitive at all, simply because I wasn't much of an athlete, but I found an arena of competition as a child. It was actually the arena of business. That's where my arena of competition is. We all operate in different arenas. And the fact is we're always competing in some area of life. You compete, you, you compete in your careers. Every one of you, on your job every day, you compete in your careers. You, you compete for your dreams. We all have dreams. We compete for our health. I've never seen a day in time 
where we've gained so much knowledge and wisdom about how we can live healthier lives. And I try to do that myself. I compete for my health every day. I've been competing this last week because of allergies for my health. Um, We compete for our values. How many know that every single day that we go out, we have to compete with the world for our morals and our values? The world is against us as far as their values and ours go because they're opposite. We have to compete for those. We have to stand up for those. We're trying to teach our children those values and those morals, but we have to compete for those. Even time. We compete for our time, and we, we compete every day against the clock. Now, not so much myself at my stage in life, but you guys that are a stage of life, many, many, many of you are at a stage of life that you compete every day against the, the clock for all the responsibilities that we have to do in a 24-hour period. I thought about wives and mothers. I've watched my wife raise up her children and, and um, take care of our family, and I thought, you know, wives and mothers, they go to the grocery and they fix the meals and they get the laundry and then they get the children to bed and they get them bathed and then she has to make time for her husband and... Um, Some, or maybe most in this room, have to make time still yet for their career. And then you have to make time for rest. Sometimes that's the last thing on the list. Husbands and dads compete against the clock for time. Time to work and a career. Time for his family. Time for his children one-on-one. How many knows it's important to spend one-on-one time with your children? But you have to compete for that time. You have to make time for that. Has to make time for his wife so that she feels loved and important. Then you have to have time for rest. Life is a race against time. It's pulling you 10 different directions. But one thing I've noticed lately in my own life, it seems like when we make uh, that final turn to the home stretch, it's kind of like a, I picture it kind of like a baseball diamond. You know, you run to first, you're about 20 years old, and you, you make it to second base by the time you're about 40. Then you round around to third. I'm on third base. I'm three-quarters of the way there. So things kind of start changing in your mind, and it's like you start realizing that life isn't so much about competing. You begin to realize it's more about completing others. We still go to soccer games, and we still go to football games. We still go to baseball games. And Debbie does take a chair, believe it or not. And she uses it sometimes. But you know, it's not so much, it's not so much about the kids winning. And you know, I never thought I'd hear myself say that. And, um, Some people probably wouldn't agree with me about that, but it's more about being there for my children. It's more about being there for my grandchildren because I want to see them to see that I have an interest in their lives, in the success of what they're doing. Now, when they win, it's just icing on the cake. We could be out of town sometimes, and um, I'll ask Debbie, I said, now, when do we need to be back home? She says, oh, we need to be back by Wednesday. They got a game Thursday. 
It's important to her. She makes sure that we're there every chance we possibly can get there. And you start realizing that it's always being first probably isn't your highest calling. Especially when you're in the position of helping others succeed in life. Have you ever known the joy of helping someone else win? I know some of you all are teachers. Many of you are teachers. I can't believe how many teachers we have, even my own family, my children and daughter-in-laws. Some of you are teachers. Doesn't it, what does it make you feel like when you help someone else win, when you help someone else succeed? Some of you are coaches. What does that do to you whenever you are able to see the face of that child or that face of that young person succeed or win because of something that you've helped them do. A fellow worker, maybe it's your office or the factory or worker in the youth church program, watching the look on their face and seeing how it begins to change them. I'll be honest with you, at one time in my life, my greatest thrill was my own success in the business arena. That was my greatest zeal. But today I'm finding out lately that my greatest thrill, my greatest joy in life is the success not only of my own children and my grandchildren, but of others too. Life is so busy for your generation. You have so many options out there. But I wanted to bring a, a scripture to you this morning. It's in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Actually, Clay mentioned this scripture last week in his sermon. I was kind of holding my breath, hoping he didn't go that direction with it. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30 says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we look at the scripture, we always interpret the meaning to be the call to salvation. And, and that it is, but there's more there. It's a call to discipleship. It was the invitation, and this is very important that we catch this right here. It was actually the invitation of a rabbi. It's so easy for us to read a scripture for many years and believe that we understand the meaning behind it. And then, and in fact, we're always learning. How many knows we're always learning? Jesus said, come on to me. And then he said, all ye. He didn't say you and you and you and you or these that are prescribed by this certain interpretation or this person or this agenda or this occupation. He said, all ye. Come unto me, all ye that labor. And I thought labor, that work, that toil and are heavy laden. What are you laden with today? You know, um, maybe you're laden with sickness in your family or, or maybe you're laden with the death of a, of a loved one or maybe you're, you're laden with trials of finances or maybe you're laden with things going on in your family or 
Maybe you're just laden with the stress of life and all the burdens that we carry. But he said, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He, he said, learn, who I, who, learn of me. Learn who I really am and what I'm asking or not asking of you. You know, sometimes we put such a uh, burden on our own self because we think God's asking more of us than what he's really asking sometimes. For I am meek and lowly. This is Jesus. You know, that's one of the only personal things Jesus ever said about himself. He said, for I am meek and lowly. And you, that's exactly the opposite of the world. And you shall find rest unto your souls. It's simple. Why are you going to find rest for your souls? Because the yoke that he has for you to wear is easy. Because the burden that he has for you to carry is light. He wants you to rest. But I believe today, in the day that we're living in, the greatest one thing that we compete in for today, I believe one of the greatest things that you as an individual more than likely compete in today is for time alone with God. When we look at the Scripture, we always interpret the meaning to say a call of salvation, but he's just saying, come unto me. So I want to share with you this morning. Um, I appreciate Jeremy for preparing uh, a PowerPoint for me. That, and, I, and I know all the work went into it, but um, um, I, still, I think you can still catch this because it's just easier when you have the visual. But, but um, as, we, as we go along here, I want to share this morning with the study of the Hebrew educational system. And the Hebrews used the system for thousands of years. As far as I know, they still use this educational system. The Hebrew people were very intentional concerning the education of their children. And their children having a relationship with God. They wanted their kids to know who God was. They wanted their children to know what God had done in their past. And there was no investment too great and no detail too small when it came to the formal development of training their children. The end result and the most coveted conclusion, the most coveted for their children as a result of the years and years of effort in training this child was that he would become a rabbi. That's what the Hebrew people wanted. They wanted their children to become rabbis. And they started day one. Now, we're, we all want our children to be successful in life. You know, we start day one. Um, I remember Debbie buying those little, um, those little things that the children, before they could even read and stuff, the little tapes they listened to and things, you know, so that they, they would learn to, from all these little, I don't know, uh, little training things that they can, they can start being educated. But um, we want our children to become successful in life. That's what we, and we, we try to go through every day, teaching them and training them and mentoring them and trying to mold them. But they wanted their children to become teachers of the teachers, the master head teacher in the ways and the knowledge of God. So they developed a method or a practice or educating their children, a system that was quite promising when it came to their children as they arrived at this desired destination of becoming a rabbi. It was called the pedagogy, pedagogy system. 
ped, of course, meaning feet, um, and pedagogy, meaning to lead a child. Every Hebrew boy was raised with one objective, to become a rabbi, and it was a 30-year intentional objective. And you know, we think 30 years, that's an awful long time. But you know, you think about it, when you start off at day one, um, many of you didn't start in your profession until you was 23 or 24 or 25 or 26, you know, depending on the degree that you got. If you went to college, I didn't go to college. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not really that much when you think about 30 years going by but the child was taught in stages. And I'd like for you, to, as we go through these stages, I'd like for you to look for parallels to our own lives today and how we raise our children. So the first stage was age zero to three. Zero to three years of age. The child would spend his first three years with his mother. Now, who better could he spend his first three years with than his mother? You know, there's nothing like the nurturing, loving care of a mother and the voice of a mother and the correction of a mother and the way that she, yes, she, she corrects, but you know how mom corrects the kids, you know, she's, she's a little more gentle than, than dad whenever she's correcting the kids and it's almost like the, you know, it's, it's just like what else could expose a child more so to the, the heart and the love of God? You know, yeah, he, he, he she's stern. But, you know, she still has a hand on your shoulder while she's being stern. That's just how a mother is. But, and she would spend her days, she was serious now about that child becoming a rabbi, though. That's something she was serious about. And she would spend her days reciting the stories that we now have in our modern-day Bible. She would tell them the stories of Adam and Eve and Noah and the ark and the Tower of Babel and David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den. She would recite all these stories to this child because she wanted this child to know his history. You have to know your history if you're ever going to experience your destiny. It causes me to think situations in my own life that God brought me from childhood and the heartache, the disappointments, the dangers, but it's because of God's grace and God's mercy. His never-ending love has maneuvered my life to the place that I stand here today. Now, I didn't understand everything. I never understood everything. It was just one of those things that, you know, you just trust God and go on. Because you learn to believe in God. Something that my mother would do as we were children, we were, um, there were several of us, a whole house full of kids. You know how that back in the 60s and the 70s were? A um, whole house full of kids. It was something my mom would do in the evenings. Um, we didn't have, you know, laptops or tablets or phones or I don't know what all these kids have, computers. We, we, we didn't have anything like that. We had a TV, and it was black and white. It had three channels. And one of my sisters would have to go outside and turn the antenna till we holler out the window at her to hold it right there. We got ABC in. That's all we had, but Mom would turn the TV off. And she'd sit us all on the floor. And she'd get it out, an old raggedy Bible storybook. 
and she'd start reading those bi- the Bible stories to us as children. And she wanted to make sure you was listening because after she got finished, she was going to ask you some questions. And you had to raise your hand. It had to be organized. You had to raise your hand if you had the qu- answer to the question. And we get to answer the question. But you know, those stories became part of who we were. And when we got older, became adults, we didn't ask, is there really a God? We knew there was a God. We just had to decide what we were going to do with the God that we'd learned about. We didn't have to ask about the ways of God, if it was right or if it was not right or if it was accepted or if it wasn't accepted or in the day that we live in, we knew the ways of God. We just had to decide what we as an individual were going to do with the ways of God. We have to instill in our children's hearts when they're young God's ways, God's stories, the Bible stories that he gave us to give to our children. Stage two, the child was weaned, is at age three. He was assigned to the bond servant or a slave. They called him a pedagogy. The young child would even wear the clothes of all the bond servants. But there was one thing different about that, this little child's tunic. You know, they wore the little, a little linen cloth, little dress. The little boys would even wear them. Around the very hem of the, that little tunic was a blue thread. And everybody knew that it was there. You could barely see it. But everybody knew that it was there. The blue thread was almost invisible to most, but everyone in the house knew the blue thread was there. The child would spend the next 27 years with this pedagogy. The purpose of the pedagogy was to constantly, day by day, cause the child to be knowledgeable in the ways of God and God's Word. He would train and drill the child every day and make constant effort to prepare him to someday stand before the rabbi. Because there was a day coming when he was going to be having to stand before that rabbi. Every day as he began his lessons with this young boy, he would dip the child's finger in honey. And I think, you know, if, if you give my grandchildren candy, they're going to sit there with you. You know, as long as your candy lasts, they're going to stay there. You know, we even have a five-second rule at our house. If you drop a piece of candy, you got five seconds to get it up and blow it off, and it's still good. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. He would tell the child, What I'm about to teach you, is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. The process taught the child two things. Taught him the richness and the sweetness of what he was learning, the Word of God. And that caused the child to actually look forward to that time of study. He looked forward each day to this sweet treat. It was his candy. That's the candy they had back then. That was candy. 
We'll move on to stage three at age five. At age five, the boy was enrolled in Hebrew school to learn the Torah, the actual 24 books of the law. Is it, with this, it was at this point that the school teacher would actually dip the boy's hand in honey, and he would wipe the honey on the slate that he would be using for his lessons. As comical as it sounds, the boy would have to lick the honey off of his hands and even lick the honey off of the slate board that he was going to be using. His pedagogy, of course, would go to school with the boy every day, and he would sit in the back of the classroom observing the boy as the teacher taught the lessons. And what he would do when the, in that evening when he got home with the young boy, he would drill him on everything that he had learned that day that the teacher had taught. He was trying to fix it in his heart. Age, at stage four, age 10 to 13, a very special time. Now, just as the boy had spent three years with his mother, it was time for him to spend some time with his father. It was the father's responsibility to teach him the oral law. And every boy looked forward to this time. But the oral law was so holy that it couldn't be written down. The father was the only one permitted to teach this young boy these special lessons. And at the end of this special three years with his father, the son would have his bar mitzvah. We've all heard of bar mitzvah. Bar is son and mitzvah is law. So he became a son of the law. So it's important to note here that from his birth, he has always been called and referred to as a man child. He's a man child. But from this day forward, he would be referred to as a son. The father would actually adopt him. Now, in our culture today, in the Western culture, adopt means something completely different. But back then, in the true meaning of adopt, was to place a son in full ranking. So at this point, that son would remove his bondservant, that little tunic with the blue thread. He would take that off, and he would quote the Torah, the mitzvah, to the father. And the father would give him a robe. Yeah, I think of Joseph when he got that, that, that coat of many colors. He would get, that, that, he would get a, a robe. Represented his identity. If, would you notice, make a note of who's given him this identity? There's such an importance upon fathers. Such a responsibility on fathers and the relationship with their children. Did you hear me say that only the father was permitted to give this child, to talk to him about these things? He would give him a robe, his identity. He would give him a ring. And it was just not any ring, but it was a signet ring. The son would now exercise authority in the father's name. He could go do business in his father's name. And then he was given a pair of shoes. Now the son had a destiny. You know, we have, some of y'all have multiple children, and now I've got four sons, and I've got eight grandkids, and, you know, their, their personalities, I can already see, you know, they're always so much different. Every one of them are so much different, and in some ways, they're alike, and then there's still differences in them, but, you know, a father can see that. A father's able to see those differences and able to, to feed into those strengths 
and pull that out of that, that child. But you know, it's, it's like with our Father in heaven. Our Father is the one that talks to us about these personal things. Our relationship, our personal relationship with Him, He gives us an identity. And almost every one of you in this room today are, are identified as a Christian. People know you when you go out in public as, oh, that's Jeremy Baker, he's a Christian. There's, that's Justin Bray. Oh, he goes over to see, he's a Christian. People identify you. You have an identity on you, and God gives us that identity. It's because we take on his character. It's because we take on his characteristics. And then he gives us a ring, not necessarily to put it on our finger, but he gives us authority in his name. We have authority in his name, and then he gives us a destiny, a destiny that we didn't have before we knew him, before we knew him, we were just wandering, wayward, with no real direction in our lives, but he gives us a destiny and a place that he wants to take us to. Now, I got to thinking as I was studying this, I thought maybe there's a mother here today under the sound of my voice thinking, my husband isn't a believer. Or maybe you're thinking, my child's father is absent from his or her life. I always think of Timothy in the New Testament. You know, Timothy, the Bible says, his mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois, they were Jewish women. They were believers. They were women of God. But Timothy's father was not a believer. He was a non-believer. So, you know, I'm sure that those, that little mother and that little grandmother was feeding these stories to Timothy about Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Noah and the ark. I'm sure they was feeding those stories to him. And then God sent Paul along one day. And Paul became that spiritual father in his life that he was able to lead him and guide him and mentor him. He became a great man of God. So you do your part, mothers without a, a, a believing husband or a mothers with children that their fathers are absent. You do your part and God will do his part. I believe that with all my heart. Stage five, the next stage, ages 13 to 17, the next five years would tell whether this young man would apply the laws of God that he had learned or whether the laws of God would settle in his heart as he would continue to study and whether he would live his life as a Pharisee, the lover of the law, or if he would live his life by the law of love. Stage six, age 17 to 30. At this point, the son would work three hours each day with his father, learning the family trade. You know, um, Jesus' dad, Joseph, was a carpenter. You know, we find uh, the disciples there with Jesus, their dads were fishermen. Or if they were pottery makers or farmers, Whatever it was, they would work three hours a day with their father learning the trade of the family business. And then he would spend nine hours a day studying the law. At this point, the young man's life, he had learned the history, where he had come from. He would learned his heritage. He would learned a trade. He would learned the laws of God, written and oral. He would either allowed the laws of God to settle in his heart or not, and by now he was or was not living by the law of God. 
I'm reminded of the scripture in Matthew 22, 34 through 40 says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We must look in the mirror and ask ourselves the question, am I living my life as a lover of the law or am I living my life by the law of love? Stage seven, it's the final stage at age 30. The day had finally come, and this was the day when this young man had been waiting for, he'd been studying for, he'd been working for his entire life. We should be reminded that this was the age that Jesus was when he began his ministry. He was at 30 years old. This was the day that everyone had been waiting and helping him prepare for. 30 years of work, and it came down to this one day, graduation day. The father and the pedagogy would stand behind the young man as, his, as, his, as this young man would stand before the rabbi. Then the rabbi would ask him questions, interviewing him to reveal the young man's heart. And it was quickly determined whether or not the law of God had settled in this young man's heart. Here's the interesting thing. It was a moment of realization. You know, I remember um, my own children going through school, going through college. You know, sometimes it came down to one final test. And it would tell whether all these years and the money spent, if they was going to pass that test or not. If they were going to get that piece of paper in their hand that said, yes, you can go do exactly what you've studied all these years and spent all this money to be able to go do. It came down to a moment of realization. And I thought about how stressed some of my children were. And I thought about this young boy, how, how stressed as he grew up and he's age 30 and he gets to this place and he's so stressed, I'm sure, intimidated by this big rabbi guy that he's got to stand before. See, the, the, the problem with it, everybody didn't pass. Everybody didn't get to be a rabbi, the teacher of teachers, the master teacher. This rabbi would only pick the brightest of the bright the ones that he could see great promise in. And it was based on his own personal evaluation. If the, re, if the rabbi approved of the young man and accepted him to advance him in training to become a rabbi, the rabbi would extend to him the invitation. The Hebrew words that he would say is lakakarai. So if that young man's standing there, and he's finished all this, and the rabbi speaks to him. He says, Lakakarai, it means come and follow me. An interesting thing happened. He said, these are the words, these are the greatest words that you and I could hear, are they not? For us to hear Jesus say, come and follow me. See, if the young man heard these words, the words he'd waited to hear his whole life, it was a day of celebration. The young man would turn around to his father in the pedagogy who were standing behind him. 
You know, by now, he was probably so close to that pedagogy, too. He had spent 27 years with him. And the father would speak these words to him of release. He would say, run after the rabbi. May the dust from his feet settle on you. What he was saying is he was saying, go after the rabbi, but follow him so closely that as he walks and kicks up dust, that dust is going to settle on you, on your head and on your shoulders. If the young man did not hear these words, he would return home with his father and the pedagogy, and he would either continue studying or he would enter into the trade of his father. You know, somebody would have to ask, did Jesus, did Jesus make the cut? Was he considered the brightest of the bright? Well, we read 13 times in Scripture that Jesus was referred to as rabbi, and we read another 27 times in Scripture, rabboni, which means rabbi. So, yes, Jesus made the cut. He was the brightest of the bride, even as a young boy in the temple with the you remember at 12 years old, he went to the temple, how bright he was, and they were just marveled at his wisdom. Even though he did make the, the cut, he didn't agree with the brightest of the bright selection pattern. He didn't agree with it. Remember, Jesus went to those men by the sea that day, those who were working in the family business. They were back with their dads, working in the family business, who were not necessarily what some would consider the brightest of the bright, those, those who had longed to hear but probably never heard the words, Lakakarai, come follow me. So Jesus called the very words out to them that they'd been waiting to hear their entire life. So here they are fishing or mending nets and working over here with their dads, and they hear somebody from a pier said, come and follow me, Lakakarai, which they've been waiting to hear those words. It's no wonder that they dropped what they were doing. And thought, you know, we wonder, I've often wondered, I thought, you know, what, what was the deal where they just would drop what they were doing? What, what would make somebody just drop? If somebody came by to me and they'd haul, come follow me, well, I'm, who are you? They've been waiting to hear those words. They'd worked their entire life to hear those words. Jesus even called to Peter more than once. You remember in spite of the fact that Peter failed, how many's failed him? In spite of the fact that Peter denied Jesus, in spite of the fact that Peter only followed from a far distance as Jesus went to the cross, Jesus still called to him again. There that morning at breakfast by the sea, he said, Peter, just follow me. Now, if we go to the scene of the, of the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, John 19 and 25 says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said, to his mother, woman, behold thy son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, not that day, from that hour, 
that disciple took her to his own home. There was John at the foot of the cross, covered with dust. The multitudes had turned against Jesus. Disciples, many of them had turned away from him. They said his words were too hard. Even some of the 12 followed from so far. Most of them did, except John. But John, there was John at the foot of the cross. Did you know that John's account of the crucifixion is more detailed than any of the other Gospels in the Bible? Why? Why do you think John's account of the crucifixion is more detailed than any of the other disciples in the other Gospels? It's because he followed the closest of all. He had a front row seat to what was going on that day. But there's five things that we can learn. I want to share them with you if they want to come to the music. You don't necessarily have to be the brightest of the bride in order for Jesus to choose you. And I said, amen. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that you don't have to be the brightest of the bride in order for Jesus to call out to you. Those words, you know, come and follow me. It doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, how great of an education you have, who your parents were, what your occupation is. What kind of a degree you have. It doesn't matter. Those things don't matter. Jesus said, come unto me all, ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Another thing that we can learn is he never repents for calling you. You know, sometimes we think, well, you know, God is probably so aggravated that he ever even called me. Did he ever even call me to come and follow him? God is probably so upset at me and, and, and regrets the day that he ever called my name. But Romans 11 and 29 says, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Yes, you may fail. And yes, you may feel like you've turned your back on God. You may have done things you think God could never forgive you for. But just like Peter, Jesus just comes again. He just comes again and he says, just come on and follow me. Because I tell you, you're going somewhere with God. He's places he wants to take you. He's things that he wants to do for you and alongside of you. I told somebody one day, I said, you know, I was trying to witness to them. They weren't Christians. And I said, you know, life with God is an adventure. He wants to take us places that we would have no way otherwise ever rich in our life. He wants us to be able to do things that there's no way in our physical, mental self that we could have ever done them. Another thing that you can learn is you have a choice as to whether you follow or not. We have examples in the Word of God that of those who chose not to follow Jesus. 
One was the rich young ruler, and there was one man that had to go bury someone. Even those who turned back, saying the words of Jesus were too hard to follow. This way is just too hard. Well, I can tell you what's hard is a life not following Jesus. It'll take you places you don't want to go and lead you into things that you don't want to. There's an old song that used to say, it'll take you farther than you ever wanted to go. Living in life, not following Jesus. But you have a choice whether you follow or whether you don't. Another thing that we can learn, it does matter how closely we follow. Now you can follow from way off and you can get by. Some people choose to follow from way, way off. But you know, I'd like to follow close enough so that some of the dust from his feet will settle on me. There are thousands of things competing for our time every day, for our energy. And you guys are young, but I know that your, your energy level has a limit. <laughs> Mine's getting smaller and smaller. It competes for your energy, your attention, your devotion, your time. It's difficult to make time for everything we need to, but if we can make him our priority, we'll find rest in him that we didn't even know existed. You know, I think about, um, I think about my own children and, and uh, so many of you all with small children, I think, you know, you get through your day and you get up and you go and you do and you work your job and maybe you get home and you fix your meals and you get your children bathed and then you get them in the bed and you finally sit down. You know, mom's probably folding a load of clothes. You know, she's, she's not, she's a completely sit resting, but she's, she's at least sitting down. And you know, she hears that voice. Come follow me. Come spend some time. Do you know how hard that is? How difficult it is? We all know how hard it is. We've all been there. Number five, things that we can learn. It's never too late to follow Jesus. My dad was 68 years old when he finally took rest in him. My grandfather was 67. But you know the thing that they had going for him? They had a heritage. My great-grandfather was a Pentecostal preacher. He raised four Pentecostal preachers. That's why I love the day of Pentecost. That means so much to me. It's my heritage. I know where I came from. And because I know where I came from and I know my history and I know my heritage, then I know my destiny. And my destiny is in Him. I'll never find my destiny in anything else. But I can find it in Him. It's never too late to follow Jesus. Those disciples working and going about their everyday life, just passing time. They thought for sure their time had passed to hear those words, but Jesus showed up one day. He said, La Kakarai, come and follow me. So the question remains today. 
If you aren't following Jesus, would you like to follow him? It's an adventure. You're going to go places and do things that you never would have went and done otherwise. If you are following Jesus, how close do you want to follow him? Would you like to follow him a little closer? Myself, I'm determined to follow him more closely because that, my friend, is where we will find rest from all of our labor and all of our toiling. It's in him. The Bible says, draw nearer to God and he'll draw nearer to you. Amen.